This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. I'm Nithin Seem for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Thanks for joining us for the latest Out of the Blue podcast, in which I discuss an article recently published in the Blue Journal. This article is entitled Inflammatory and Comorbid Features of Patients with Severe Asthma and Frequent Exacerbations. And I'm pleased to be joined today by study author Dr. Lauren Denlinger. Dr. Denlinger, thanks for joining us, and uh, please introduce yourself to our listeners. Thanks, Dr. Seem. I'm uh, an associate professor of medicine at the University of Wisconsin and have had the opportunity to work with the uh, NHLBI Severe Asthma Research Program uh, since the beginning of this funding cycle. I want to thank you and the ATS for giving me the opportunity to, to re- represent the NHLBI Severe Asthma Research Program. And I also want to quickly thank the participants and the coordinators. It was a lot of work to get this study done and it's still going. I think the portfolio results will really change the way we think about severe asthma. Well, I think that's really kind and appropriate of you. There's a lot of people who put a lot of time into this sort of work, and, uh, and it definitely takes a village. Um, so, yeah, just starting out, uh, I'd like you to provide the listeners with some background. You know, I'm more familiar with the, the significant amount of literature regarding the subgroup of COBD patients known as frequent exacerbators. And what's interesting about them is that's often independent of the severity of obstruction as defined by FEV1. So in terms of what we knew about asthma patients prone to exacerbations uh, uh, prior to your current study, uh, could you tell us what the, what the existing data was and what was known about the long-term effects of frequent exacerbations? Yeah. Quite frankly, I think it had been assumed for a long time that the risk factors for severe asthma and for frequent exacerbations were pretty similar. Uh, things like age of onset, duration of asthma, sex, race, allergic status, socioeconomic compliance, or socioeconomic status, and even medication compliance uh, were all thought to be one and the same between severe disease and asthma exacerbations. We actually looked to the COPD literature to, to model our, our analysis uh, because it really takes a, a, a longitudinal cohort uh, with very rich phenotyping to, to pull out some of these distinctions. There is a hypothesis in the literature that uh, frequent exacerbations are a risk factor for developing airway remodeling and, and, and severe asthma. But um, the studies to, to test that are few and far between. So we're hoping to, to include that in some of our longitudinal modeling. So in terms of your manuscript, you followed a cohort of 709 patients with asthma from, as you said, the NHLBI Severe Asthma Research Program 3, or SARP-3. Um, could you tell us about this cohort? Obviously, they were enriched uh, to have more patients with severe asthma, but could you tell us how asthma was diagnosed, the clinical characteristics of these patients, um, and how you followed them. Yeah, so the uh, physician diagnosis is always a great place to start, and we verified this diagnosis by uh, measuring responsiveness to albuterol in the lab. Uh, Ideally, uh, patients would have 12% or more on a relative basis um, to 
to qualify for um, validation of their, their severe asthma diagnosis uh, after also reviewing their, their medication status. If uh, patients were not responsive to albuterol, they were invited back for a methacholine challenge procedure. Uh, so if you were responsive to methacholine, um, you could also get into the study. You didn't need to, to, to respond to albuterol to get in. As you kind of alluded to, 60% of the cohort um, were targeted as severe disease based on a high dose of inhaled corticosteroids and a second controller agent, as well as requiring uh, evidence of poor control, chronic obstruction, or frequent exacerbations. The other benchmark that we had was the cohort was intended to have at least 25% children, and, and we did meet that goal as well. So at the at baseline visit, there was extensive surveys done, a physical exam, detailed lung function, blood and respiratory samples, and then some pa patients also went on to receive imaging studies like CT scans and bronchoscopy. The visit structure was uh, intended to be annual visits over three years, and in between those annual visits, there were six-month phone calls. And the current manuscript, uh, I should be clear about, uh, focuses only on the baseline data set. We are still collecting the longitudinal visit data. Well, we'll have to have you back for the, uh, the next podcast when you have the longitudinal answers, right? That would be great. <laughs> uh, so could you tell us about the questionnaire? What sort of questions did you ask? Basic assessments of risk factors, if you will, um, allergic triggers, environmental things that might be in the home or work. Have you been exposed to tobacco secondhand, for example? Um, and then a complete past medical history uh, to, to try to um, find associations between asthma and other comorbid conditions. Um, those are just examples, I guess, of, of the surveys. Uh, certainly, symptom surveys like uh, the asthma control test and other validated instruments were also included in that panel. But it, it's really, the intent was really to make it a robust uh, longitudinal cohort with, with very uh, detailed uh, phenotyping. And just to clarify one more aspect of that, you mentioned I guess some people got imaging or bronchoscopy, I assume if that was just clinically indicated, was baseline uh, blood samples collected in, in all these patients or again was that just as clinically uh, suggested? Correct. So the, the, all this, the testing was done for the research protocol. So uh, blood samples were collected as well as uh, sputum. Uh, exhaled breath condensate, and uh, other biologic specimens. Uh, some, some patients actually contributed urine samples as well for, for metabolomics. So certainly quite a robust both clinical and uh, sort of biomarker-based uh, set. Uh, so you looked at frequency exacerbations, and you classified patients as either having none, few, or they're prone to exacerbation. Um, so just starting with some of these details, can you tell us how you defined exacerbation? And then the groups of, of few versus prone, how did you separate those two groups? So we used the consensus definition for exacerbations that was established by the ATS and ERS working group. Specifically, we looked for a burst of systemic corticosteroids that lasted for at least three days. We assessed this with uh, recall, um, patient recall, on their surveys with up to a 12-month interval. So there's some um, uh, uncertainty in that, in that measure at baseline. There was a 
detailed list of questions that are listed in the supplement for the manuscript uh, to try to uh, make sure that the control group without exacerbations was robust in that they weren't getting exposed to, to steroids uh, and, and failing to respond to this question. So the definitions of proneness or not have also changed over the years. The current ATS-ERS consensus definition for exacerbation prone disease is two exacerbations or more. And we, we think that is a reasonable choice. The current cohort uh, had the advantage of collecting the number of exacerbations as a semi-continuous variable. One, two, six, um, on up. And because of that, we were able to do uh, statistical modeling on a continuous basis, uh, which was not previously uh, possible in, in the first two versions of, of the Severe Asthma Research Program. We did stick with, uh, for the simple analysis, exacerbation prone of three or more, um, so that we could try to replicate our study in the prior network. So specifically SARP 1 and 2 used a very simple question of, did you have three or more exacerbations in the last year? Yes or no? Um, and we wanted to be able to use that data set as a replication cohort. So that, that's, in a way, where we came up with three or more being the, the definition in the paper. So that's very helpful. I think that would be important. Obviously, the external validation of SARP and SARP-2, but it is slightly different, than, I guess, than what you're saying. The um, two or more is what the guidelines are suggestive as exacerbation. Yeah, so the table for the uh, multivariable model before we uh, went ahead to replicate that is actually using that as a continuous variable. So it's not uh, requiring a cut point of two or more or three or more. Okay. And for our listeners, there is a link to the article um, on uh, the ATS Journal's uh, podcast homepage, so you can dive deeper into the data. So I guess I'd like to leave our listeners in suspense uh, no longer, and let's talk about uh, what you found. So how many people in your cohort were excuse me, exacerbation prone? And did you note any clinical characteristics that uh, predicted exacerbation prone asthmatics. Obviously, most of the patients were um, had severe baseline asthma. So, was that one? And were there other characteristics? So, I think this one of the surprising findings of our study is that forty percent of the patients actually had no exacerbations. Thirty-five percent were characterized as few, meaning one or two in our classification scheme, and one hundred and seventy-three or twenty-five percent of the cohort were exacerbation prone. Now, on the face of it, it might be simple to say, well, um, the 40% with no exacerbations are simply the patients who have mild disease. And that, that wasn't the case. We actually found that 37 patient, 37% of the patients without exacerbations actually met other criteria for severe disease. Um, so that's, that initial observation was kind of what prompted us to think about, could exacerbation frequency be separate in many ways from uh, severe uh, asthma. We were surprised in that um, several factors that were classically associated with asthma severity were not associated with frequency, namely uh, 
age, sex, duration of disease, socioeconomic status, and even medication adherence. The patients in our cohort with, with exacerbation-prone disease were um, actually on a lot of uh, therapy and, and responding to adherence questionnaires in a way that was identical to the other, the other two groups. So you, you did find um, some things that were not associated with the exacerbation-prone asthma, but then of the things we think about that uh, we think may uh, predispose someone to be exacerbation-prone, were there any characteristics that jumped out at you that, other than severity, that were associated with the, the EPA group? Yeah, so um, there were uh, two other findings that were a little surprising in this cohort. One was that we found a direct association between uh, the number of exacerbations and bronchodilator reversibility. So specifically, the more uh, responsive you are to albuterol, the higher the risk of exacerbations. And that we found that to be a little bit counterintuitive. Um, the other thing that we, the other thing we found surprising was, and and before I say it, I'll, I'll make the caveat: these patients were on a lot of corticosteroids. But what was surprising in our data set was that the strength of the relationship with the type 2 inflammatory signal was not as robust as we thought it would be in the unadjusted models. So specifically, blood eosinophils um, did not do so well in the unadjusted models in predicting exacerbation frequency. Uh, same with exhaled nitric oxide. Um, there was a trend with sputum eosinophils and um, actually an in inverse relationship with IgE that, that didn't hold up in the multivariable models. So those, those findings were a bit surprising. It really um, got me to think about how do we use blood eosinophils in terms of predicting exacerbation risk. I think if you have a patient in your clinic with high blood eosinophils, they're at high risk for exacerbations based on lots of literature uh, and might be eligible for uh, biomarker-directed therapy. However, history is very important in these patients, and if a patient is telling you they have frequent exacerbations, you check their blood eosinophil count and it's low, these data are telling us that we need to start looking for other factors. Yeah, I, I think that was very interesting to me. It really jumped out when you're talking about markers like the exhale, the NO, and as you said, eosinophils, the lack of a, a signal there and measures of type 2 inflammation I thought was, was very interesting, and it's, it does make you think about you know, frequent exacerbators uh, not uh, uh, who don't have eosinophils. You know, what can um, you know? How do you think about this group of patients, and and what can you modify? Um, and and so, I wanted to use that to segue to talk about comorbid conditions. Um, you noted, I guess, sinusitis, GERD, and obesity were associated with more exacerbations. And is that consistent with, with prior data uh, in this group of patients? And then, again, getting back to the question you brought up, how might that impact the care of exacerbation-prone asthmatics if these are some of the things that are potentially modifiable? So um, these associations have been replicated in other studies, so the observ these observations are not novel in, in, in any way. Um, I guess the open question is, uh, which came first, the comorbid disease or the severe asthma, and, and are some of these factors, perhaps obesity or even metabolic syndrome, related to the corticosteroid exposure? Um, are, are they um, modifiable? I, I, I think they, they could be, and, they, and studies that have looked at um, 
intervening have been mixed, quite frankly. Um, but I, I, I wonder if um, these data are causing us to, to think about mechanisms of exacerbations um, that might be parallel or, or independent of, of type 2 inflammation. So when I teach med students about obstruction, there's at least three mechanisms that are relevant to asthma. One would be constriction uh, that can be reversed by bronchodilators. Another would be plugging up the lumen with mucus or debris. And the third would be remodeling the airway, making the walls uh, more narrow on, on a chronic basis. So certainly, mucus production inside the airway itself is a mechanism in asthma. Don't have great treatments there, but I would argue that if you have sinusitis or you have active reflux, anyone who snores aspirates into their airway, and that contributes to lower airway inflammation. It may even contribute to lower airway obstruction. Um, so I, I think trials that have looked at reflux, for example, to neutralize the stomach acid may have only been treating part of the, the problem. Um, the pH may not be the only thing that, that, that's actually um, contributing to the exacerbation. So those are provocative statements and clearly need to be validated in, in the context of, of pragmatic trials. Um, but I, I do think some of these exacerbation risk factors may be modifiable in ways that we haven't you know, thought about before. So th thank you for that detailed discussion of the findings from SARP-3 that are very provocative, as you said, and, and interesting and may help us rethink how we look at these patients with exacerbation-prone asthma. But as you said, some of the things do conflict with some of our prior uh, data. And I guess the sort of broad question is, after looking at SARP-3, how well do we understand exacerbation-prone asthma? And as a follow-up to that, um, are the issues related to comorbidities and type 2 inflammation that may or may not predispose to exacerbation-prone asthma, are they settled or do they need further study? Well, I think the simple answer is we have a lot more studies to do. Isn't that always the answer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the really hard piece from the clinician and me's perspective is, is that these biomarkers that we develop overlap quite a bit. There are tremendous overlap between blood eosinophils and type 2 markers with markers of bronchodilator responsiveness, for example, or even with patients who might have obesity and metabolic dis syndrome. We, we have a really good handle on the endotype, if you will, for type 2 inflammation. But outside of that space, we really don't have good markers for uh, non-type 2 endotypes. And I think um, these types of studies will help us to explore what are those endotypes that are out there and, and how do we identify them from a clinician's perspective when you're dealing with a complex patient in, in, right in front of you. Uh, so I, I think the, the future will hold um, uh, mechanistic studies looking at that question, but also clinical trials with an adaptive design, much like you might see with uh, the oncology literature. Uh, this is part of the funding mechanism that the NHLBI is, is put forth uh, to put together a new network uh, for clinical trials based on biomarker responsiveness. So just to, to follow that up, so 
you would see a trial of maybe patients who have uh, you know, more than two exacerbations um, but have normal blood eosinophils, and you would enroll patients in that way as opposed to uh, a, another trial you you'd enroll patients based on some markers of type 2 inflammation? In part, it's, it's a little uh, more complex. So I think traditional placebo-controlled parallel-arm studies have approached biomarkers in a way from a statistical standpoint that leads to designs biomarker high, biomarker low. And at the end of the day, it may be hard to fill one arm or the other based on the, the frequency of that, that biomarker in the population. So the adaptive trial design is really innovative um, in that it, it allows you to enroll everybody and look at the overlap of some of these biomarkers and use Bayesian statistics, if you will, to adapt the randomization probabilities such that you get randomized to the biomarker precise treatment or a comparator treatment. Uh, and if you don't do well in that comparator treatment, then you have the opportunity to, to, to switch, uh, much like you would in a, in a cancer study. Um, so this, this network, um, uh, as I mentioned, was proposed by the NHLBI, and uh, the applications have been submitted, but uh, we won't know who is, is taking part of this until at least this summer. So then just to that, that sounds very interesting, but to, to follow up the SARP-3 cohort and just to close our podcast, you mentioned that, you know, what we're talking about today relates to the baseline data, and you do have the, the telephone follow-up in six months and then the annual uh, in-person exam. Um, what other questions do you hope to answer as you follow this group longitudinally? Yeah, I'm really interested in the stability of some of these exacerbation phenotypes. If you're exacerbation resistant, does that stay stable through the longitudinal follow-up period. On the opposite end of the spectrum, if you're exacerbation prone, do you continue to be exacerbation prone? And what are the risk factors that, that uh, put patients in, in either category? Um, we're fortunate that um, we probably have 30 to 50 percent of the patients through that third year visit. So, so we're, getting, we're getting close, um, but we're trying to be patient and, and not uh, um, uh, start the analysis until we get as many patients in the door as possible for that follow-up, that last follow-up visit. Well, we look forward to, to finding out the results of, of that as that cohort completes its, uh, its longitudinal evaluation. And I'd like to thank you, Dr. Denlinger, for joining me today. Uh, and to our listeners, you can find links to this paper uh, as well as the accompanying editorial on the podcast homepage at atsjournals.org. Uh, thank you all for listening to the latest edition of the Out of the Blue podcast.